Mosaic believes that the church is designed to be a genuine community of people, creating a safe space of belonging for all, seeking to serve our neighbors with the compassion of God, providing opportunities to learn to be more like Jesus, and living life well together. This can't happen in a one-hour time slot on Sunday mornings, yet we desire to be a worshiping, missional community in Clayton, North Carolina. Visit MosaicClayton.com or find us on Facebook, Mosaic Church of Clayton. On June the 4th of 1896, do you remember what you were doing? Anybody? Not anybody that, that old here. Uh, in a tiny little workshop on 58 Bagley Avenue, Detroit, Henry Ford uh, put his finishing touches on his pure ethanol powered motor. And at the age of 32, he had completed his first experimental automobile. And of course, uh, he wasn't the only one trying to create this contraption. That's like thinking the Wright brothers were the only people trying to achieve flight at the time that they flew in 1903. But just three years later, there was 30 manufacturers of cars in America. Yet in 1903, the president of the Michigan Savings Bank said to Henry Ford's lawyer, the horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a fad. And it only took the Ford Motor Company a few more years for they started mass producing this thing called the Model T at $600 per car. And minus the Ford Pinto, and then, of course, we have to think of the Ford Bronco that is no longer in production due to O.J. Simpson. Ford has really lived beyond the claims of the Michigan Savings Bank president. The horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a fad. You know, sometimes people make bold claims and are just flat out wrong. Turn on cable news or ESPN for talking heads to give their favorable opinion that is just going to be proven wrong within a few hours. You see, there's another person in history that made bold claims about himself. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And over the last couple of weeks, in the next couple of weeks, we will continue to examine these bold claims that Jesus made about himself. These eight claims called the I Am Statements of Jesus that landed Jesus on a cross, ten of his twelve followers martyred, and then the world's largest religion. You see, the statements that Jesus says about himself matter. They matter for him. They matter for those who claim to follow him. So what does it mean for us, theologically speaking? How does this impact our lives? For this, let's take a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, we settled in John 8 in the first week of this series when Jesus made this bold statement, I am. He's, he's going with this metaphor from, from Exodus where Moses is speaking to the bush. He asks God to say, who has sent him? He says, I am who I am. So Jesus, in the context of John 8, has been in Jerusalem. He has been, um, let's just put it this way, really making the religious leaders really angry to the point that they try to have him arrested and they try to come with a reason to kill him multiple times. And none other than the text that we are going to examine today is really what fueled their fire that three years later they will put him on a cross. So John 8, 1 reads this way. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees caught a woman, brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now do what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. 
law, the law of Moses, is there any more exciting books than reading Leviticus and Deuteronomy on just a, a great boring day? Here in these books of the Bible are law upon law upon law. It's a, it's a high school principal's dream come true. These laws uh, form around, really they're just commentary on the original Ten Commandments given to Moses. And then commandment numero siete, you shall not commit adultery. But just in case the Hebrew people didn't get this from the Ten Commandments, there are multiple other passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that tell you what should happen if someone is, quote, caught in adultery. Like Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge this evil from Israel. This repeats again in Leviticus 20.10. Purge this evil from Israel. There's a text later on in Deuteronomy that tells us exactly what you should do. You should drag these two people outside of the city gates and stone them to death. Think about that for just a second. The actual act of throwing stones at someone until they die. But I love that Deuteronomy 17 says, but you shouldn't just take this on the word of one person. There's got to be two or three people that can also back up this claim against these people. So in reality, what we need to understand from the context of what these men are saying to Jesus is that they are right and Jesus is wrong. They're right. The law of Moses did say that we should stone this woman, so let's stone her. These Pharisees loved their law so much. They wanted to follow the law as clearly as possible. They believed that if they followed the scriptures to the utmost perfection, and if they could force other people to follow these laws, that God would bring favor back to Israel. They believed that God, in his favor, would overcome Rome, would overcome the puppet rulers that were ruling over them, and that God would restore Israel back to its former glory, all if they could live out the scripture to its perfection. As much as things change, they really do stay the same. Replace the Pharisees with some sort of religious group today who find that if you could just smash the Bible in people's faces, the world would go back to a better place and God would bring his favor upon us. Please don't misunderstand me. I love the Bible. The scripture gives me life. The scripture shapes me and informs how I live my life. However, when religious people are charged with the task of interpreting holy text, it can get a little dicey. In reality, there is no great way to bring uniformity of how we interpret a book when flawed beings as ourselves, and oh, by the way, all of us are flawed beings, it can get a little troublesome when reading and interpreting and implementing God's text. In fact, it is a dangerous task. The task of putting the Bible in people's hands, understood as the Word of God for the people of God, can be a struggle as to what type of authority we bring into other people's lives. There is great danger in flawed beings employed with the power to interpret holy text. Stop and think about that for just a second. The New Testament writers gave us several key texts placed in the hands of southern pastors before, during, and after the Civil War that became the justification for the most horrendous treatment of human beings. They were given the authority to use this text 
You can just close your eyes and imagine the words of 1 Peter 2 being passionately preached in the deep south. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. It was in the use of Spaniards and Portuguese who were quoting scripture as they conquested and enslaved the people of Latin America. When scripture says that God gave humans dominion over the earth, that scripture has been used over and over again to ravage the earth of its resources, all for the gain of monetary gain. You see, the danger of interpreting texts has led various groups throughout church's history to use these texts for church discipline and militant texts of the Hebrew scriptures to do inhumane things like burn reformers and Anabaptists, so-called witches and heretics at the stake. Because nothing says the love of Jesus like tying someone to a pole and setting them on fire. So the Pharisees are given this law of Moses and they're interpreting it as clearly as they can. And we can't judge the Pharisees because when we stop and think about it, how often do we take scripture and twist it to fit our own standards, our own way of life, our own particular group of people that we don't agree with. Yet I think this text can teach us something very important about the Bible. And that's how we interpret it matters because the Bible is complicated. It's intriguing and challenging to translate the word of God because it's such a deep book. The Bible is not cut and dry. Some passages are written metaphorically and allegorically. These texts are intended, some texts are intended to be uh, figurative and others are intended to be literal. We read text and sometimes it's difficult to understand what's going on in the context, what historical pieces are going on there. Is this a spiritual lament? Is this something that we should take in our lives? Some texts are black and white. Other texts are gray. The Bible is extremely complicated. And anyone who has told you otherwise has clearly never wrestled with the same God who in the Old Testament calls for the mass genocide of men, women, and children. And the same God in the New Testament, through Jesus Christ, we see a God who calls us to love, to serve, to bless, and to never strike back our enemies. The Bible is complicated candidates of the most bitterly contested theological and moral issues of the last 2,000 years have quoted scripture against each other to argue their particular points. You and I can read the same books of the Bible and verses and come away with drastically different perspectives on the role of marriage, gender equality, racial equality, alcohol, war, economic systems, the end of time, separation of church and state, marriage, sexuality, on and on and on. You see, the statement the Bible says is quite complicated. It's not as easy as we want it to be. Beyond the reading the text of whether it's allegorical or literal or dramatic or metaphorical, there still remains the original context. Who wrote it? Who were they writing to? What particular situations were they writing about? To understand the context of scripture matters so deeply. So you see, interpreting the Bible matters because it's such a complicated document that we are encountering. And the Pharisees' literal interpretation of the law of Moses, they want justice. 
They want blood on their stones. And so it says this in verse 6. They were using this question to trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down on the ground and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. So when you have this group of the Pharisees who have dragged this woman before Jesus, the law was justifying what they were doing. But Jesus calls them to consider how many of the laws they have broken in their lives. Whether or not they found themselves being hovered over by a mass group of people ready to stone them. Jesus is putting the whole law of Moses on the table for these self-righteous religious zealots to consider. So why don't we do the same? Are we truly faithful to the Bible? Do we do what, quote, the Bible says? Take, for example, the law of Moses. Over the last few years, the laws of Moses found in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy have been vehemently referenced to condone sexual practices of others. These scriptures are either prefaced or followed by, well, the Bible says. Okay, let's roll with that for just a second. Deuteronomy has some very interesting laws that we sometimes don't want to read and interpret. Anybody eating uh, shrimp, lobster, crawfish, oysters, clams, crawdads? Uh Uh-oh. Leviticus 19.10 said that's an abomination. The sweet and savory bacon that you and I chewed on at some point in the last week, all our vegetarians just cringe within them. Well, good gracious, we have all broken the law of Moses. Ladies who gave birth to your son and then you came to worship within 33 days? Oh, wow, you just broke the law of Moses. And if you gave birth to a girl, 66 days. You have to wait to enter into worship of God. Anybody have a stubborn or rebellious son who hasn't obeyed what you said? Well, maybe you should take Deuteronomy 21 that says you should take him outside of the city and stone him to death. All that I'm saying is that... uh, There's some other interesting things. Like there's one in here that says if you and another man are fighting and your wife steps in and grabs the private parts of the person you're fighting, her hand has to get cut off. That's in the book of Leviticus. But here's the question. That had to have happened for them to have to write that in the law of Moses. We're like, oh, that's not happening again in history. We need to make sure we write this one down. Planting a garden with two different seeds, mixing clothes, fabric, cutting your hair on the sides, trimming your beard, selling a fellow Israelite into slavery. Folks, we are just getting warmed up. And all of a sudden, we start to see that there are issues within the Old Testament. You might be thinking, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well... According to the New Testament, women are not allowed to speak in church and certainly shouldn't teach other men. Anyone wearing expensive jewelry or nice clothes here? The Bible tells us again and again, we shouldn't possess such things. Jesus must have been joking when he said that if you have two shirts, you should give that to someone else who is in need. Or sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor and come and follow me. James says that the rich should weep and wail for their misery is coming to them. Anyone in the last couple of weeks returned a runaway slave to the master? No? Nobody? I'm a little worried for some of us who do have multiple shirts here and jackets on today that we are breaking the New Testament. You see, what what we need to see is that we have particular biases when it comes to Scripture. And this is what Jesus is encountering with the Pharisees and this adulterous woman before them. Every law calls for them to stone this woman. But for every law that is there, for that particular reason, 
there is also other laws that call for repentance and forgiveness and compassion. They were simply picking and choosing which laws were more important for their religious practice and beliefs. All things considered, do we see that interpreting the word of God is simultaneously exciting and a challenge? Could it be that what we do in in interpreting this complex scripture, as we read it, as we interpret it, as we apply it to our lives, that we can easily become like the Pharisees? In reality, we can easily become religious zealots who live by some laws and not by other laws, who condemn certain groups, but we don't want to see the flaws in our own life. And like the Pharisees, we can turn the Bible into an object and an idol that we worship and use against other people. Verse 9 says this, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, this story personifies who Jesus is, plain and simple. When given the opportunity to use the word of God to condemn this woman and to literally take her life, that's what the law of Moses says. Jesus chose something different. Let that sink in for just a second. When given the opportunity to use the word of God to condemn and put this woman to death, Jesus chose something different. This woman literally had a horde of religious laws that were going against her, yet Jesus chose a greater law. He chose the law of love. You see, the power of love driven to the root of who we are, that's what Jesus is striving for here. He's choosing love instead of religious laws and regulations. In the face of choosing this in this moment, these these religious convictions and judgment and plans, Jesus chooses love. And these men that are surrounding this woman start to realize their guilt their recognition, their flaws. Jesus did all of this through love. That's an intense love that God has. What Jesus has done in this moment was to teach the Pharisees, this woman, and us something very significant. Scripture is not designed for us to simply read and interpret and put into action. The Word of God is intended to be enhanced of how we relate and communicate with God. Jesus changed all of this. Uh, Do you remember your first car? Thinking my first car brings up some of the fondest memories of my teenage years. I've often talked about um, in sermons my love for my Jeep Cherokee Pioneer, so we won't go there, but we'll talk about Jennifer's first car. Jennifer's first car was a Buick Skylark. The windows didn't work, neither did the AC. She says that she actually had to staple the roof fabric to the foam pieces because it was dripping down like Spanish moss in her, all in the car. Before the creation of the automobile, uh, automobile, people were forced to travel by foot, by horse, by buggy, or by train. The average person walks 3.1 miles an hour. The average horse and buggy is 10 to 15 miles an hour. So if you really want to get somewhere faster before the car, you hop on the back of a horse because they average about 25 miles an hour. Few inventions have had such a greater impact than the automobile had on humanity. It enhanced the way that we do business, it enhanced the way that we do economy, it enhanced the way that we travel. 
American, some have said that the American culture wouldn't exist without the creation of the automobile. It changed the way that we look at transportation. In 2006, uh, they said that there's uh, 268.8 million cars in the United States. And there's 1.3 billion cars in the world. I really don't see us going back to 3.1 miles an hour, and I really don't see the DOT adding a horse and buggy lane in the new 540 that's coming here in the next couple of years. The car changed everything. Jesus changed everything. We go back to how things were before Jesus. We see that we can't go back to that. Jesus changed everything. John tells us in the opening of his Gospels that the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of his one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word of God that became flesh. Jesus changed everything when it comes to God's Word. How we read it, how we interpret it, how we put it into action. When seen through Jesus, Scripture takes on new life and new meaning. This is exactly what Jesus was done in this moment. He has lived out the Word of God through a real, authentic, transformational, and radiant love. You see, when seen through Jesus, the Word of God can only heal instead of destroy, give life instead of death, forgive instead of condemn, call for healthy change instead of judgment. The Scripture defines God as love and love as God. So how else can we read and interpret and put God's Word into action except through the transformative compassion of God? And as we see this encounter with Jesus. This woman was transformed by the living Word of God. It loved her. It guarded her. It transformed her life. You see, reading and interpret Scripture, it matters. I think this is what the Pharisees are they're trying to do. They're trying their best. We're trying our best. But what we need to see is that the Word of God must be seen through Jesus. When we encounter the scriptures, it must be seen through Christ, through Christ's compassion and grace and mercy. That's how we read and interpret the text. It transforms our lives and the lives of others. And none of it lived out here in the last part of our verse, here in verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness will have the light of life. You forgot we're in this I am series. We hadn't gotten to that statement yet. I love how simplistic Jesus is. These words speak so plainly. I love the complexity of Jesus because these words speak into the core of our existence. John's opening words of the gospel take shape into reality here in this moment where he says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. To this woman, Jesus was a beacon of light. But Jesus also illuminated a new path forward for her. To the religious leaders he stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with, Jesus was a bright light illuminating their self-righteousness. But also Jesus wasn't shaming them and leaving them behind. Jesus' light was calling them to live a life that's more reflective of God's light and compassion. Jesus is our light. 
Jesus is our light into our darkness. Jesus is our light to spotlight the injustice of this world. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is our light. But Jesus is also calling us to be the light of the world. And this is such a a cliche saying that we have used over and over again in the evangelical church. And for far too long, this has been expressed as being the light of the world by self-righteous indignation of, quote, preaching the gospel to all nations. The American evangelical church has worked so hard to convince us that personal salvation by asking Jesus into our heart is all that God desires. But as we encounter the living way of Jesus in our lives, we see that we are called to something much deeper and fuller. And when we allow ourselves to be shocked and appalled by the injustice of this world, things that happen in our backyard, we see the tragedy of things like the Parkland shooting, this ongoing racism we see in our country, and nevertheless all the injustices that are happening around the world, we might conjure up some feelings where we might give a gift to someone. We might say a prayer for this particular thing. But at the end of the day, are we truly willing to be the light to the world? It's simple. For many, we avoid being the light of the world like a plague. We aren't comfortable with those that don't look like us, those that don't think like us. We're certainly not comfortable with going to those parts of town or surrounding ourselves with people that are those types of people. Inconvenience is not something that we want to be attributed to us. So why would we inconvenience our time and our money and our resources and our gifts to be the light of the world to, to those people? Being the light of the world too often unveils our discrimination, our favoritism, and maybe even our racism that we're not willing to own up to. And we can come up with all the what ifs. What if they're lying? What if they'll use the money for alcohol or drugs? What if, what if we're in danger? What if we get sick? We simply don't like being reminded of how uncomfortable it is to truly follow Jesus. We want a faith that doesn't challenge us to get outside of our comfort zone. We want the light of Jesus, but we don't want to become the light of the world as he called us to. And I think Jesus' light shows the hole in our gospel. When asked what is the greatest command, Jesus says what? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We see this again and again of examples of Jesus. But what we don't see is these patty cake examples of being the light of the world. We see these deep, carnal, dirty, and gritty moments where Jesus chose to be the light of the world. And is calling us to do the same. John in his letter expresses it this way. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. There is no following Jesus without action and truth. It's just lip service. Let that sink in for just a second. Is this the whole in our gospel? As I wrestled with this text this morning, I kept coming back to this idea of we love for Jesus to be the light in our life. That's a simple concept for us. 
But are we willing to let Jesus shine light into the injustice of our life? Are we willing to let Jesus shine light to show us that we're really not that willing to be the light of the world? Here is God who became flesh, who walked among us. If we truly read his message and observe his ministry, it's not some new religion that Jesus established, but a new way of living that Jesus is calling us to. Following Jesus is a call to live in a new way in light and love of God. It's not a love that binds up with our words, gives us sight, it casts out light into our darkness, it takes our brokenness and makes us whole, it resurrects our hearts and our minds and our souls from the dead. And this is an invitation of Jesus, not to experience this transforming power of, of God and just experience for ourselves, but to change the way that we live our lives. Jesus is inviting us to follow him. To follow and to learn from him. To eventually, day after day, reflect his words, his thoughts, and his actions. So how can we claim to follow Jesus if we're not living a life that reflects Jesus? As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Will we allow Jesus to drive out the dark shadows of our existence? Will we allow the light of Jesus to radiate through us to give hope and peace and joy and grace to this world? Will we allow the light of Jesus to burst forth through our lives to illuminate the injustices we see in this world? Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is our light. Jesus is calling you and me to be the light of the world. Will we? As the great Brenning Manning wrote, What makes the kingdom come here is heartfelt compassion. A way of tenderness that knows no frontiers, no labels, no compartmentalization, and no sectarian division. It's for all people. Let's pray together.